Hi everybody, welcome to CM Memes. In my place here in Germany, the weather has really switched from summer to autumn now. It's raining, it's dark and it's much colder. And unfortunately my mood has also become much darker. I hope this will not become too obvious in this podcast recording. And in addition to the weather change, I also have some other private problems. So, for example, my mother had some medical emergency a while ago and she has completely recovered now. That's, that's nice, but still this incident is still uh, creating some anxiety in my mind. And then, in addition, I have to worry little by little about my next working contract. So, as long-time listeners know, I have been working with fixed-time contracts for all my life with a maximum duration of three years. And in the moment I'm working in my 27th contract with the same university, basically. So I never got a permanent position. And as you can imagine, this creates a lot of stress if you will be able to get money for your next three years. And then, of course, we have also this world situation, which is not so fantastic recently, as you may agree. And especially here in Germany, we are wondering if we will have blackouts and severe explosions of energy prices and so on, and of prices for uh, foods. Yeah, and so I have already made a little bit preparation for possible blackouts. So I ordered some LED lamp with batteries and some replacement batteries, <laughs> such kind of things. So generally speaking, the mood is dark. But I hope at least that recording a podcast on such a slightly depressing day may change my mind. So the topic that I would like to talk about today is the scientific method. I think most of us have been brought up with the conviction that science was one of the best inventions of humanity ever. And we believe that technology is based on science and that therefore the enormous benefits that we get from modern technology have to be attributed to basic science. And I certainly don't deny that some improvement in the understanding of the world in basic science can in principle cause some significant improvement in our day-to-day -day living conditions in principle. But what I want to argue today is that the causal chain that connects these basic scientific findings with our daily life, this causal chain is very, very long and complicated and it can be disturbed by many ways and I'm afraid it has been disturbed tremendously during the past decades. And this can lead then To a situation where we are spending more and more money for the funding of scientific basic research, but still the life conditions are degrading instead of improving. And at least in my personal experience, this is actually happening in the moment. I feel that many products nowadays have a lesser quality than a few years ago, and these economic and environmental crises that we are facing now, 
they may lead to a breakdown of even the most basic functions of a modern society, like the ability to heat your apartments or to get food. Maybe it's a good idea for me to start at the root of this causal chain and to first talk about what can go wrong in basic science itself. So one important factor here, which seems trivial, but which I think is very consequential, is that science is done by human beings, by scientists, which need to earn money from their scientific activity in order to make a living. And this necessity to, you know, pay your rents, this will have an enormous effect on your day-to-day -day decisions as a scientist. Yeah, it already starts with the choice of your research topic. So one possible criterion for choosing a research field may be what is currently most needed in society. So what are the scientific questions that should be solved with the highest urgency? And indeed, I had some students who have been drawn to fields like climate research or sustainable economy for understandable reasons. Another possible criterion would be purely academic. So a young researcher may ask him or herself, what am I mostly interested in? I think both criteria make sense. If you are working on something really important, that may give you a lifelong satisfaction and a sense of purpose. And if you are working on something that really interests you, that will provide you with a lot of energy from within. And if you are extremely lucky, you may even find a field that is both relevant and interesting. But in reality, you only have a limited choice about your career path. In reality, you always have to adapt to what is locally available and to what gives you money. So, for example, I had some students who would have liked to do a research project in a specific topic they were interested in or which they considered relevant, but it turned out that in our local university they cannot do it because there is no institute that fits this specific topic. Yeah, maybe there would have been some other university in Germany which Uh, allows you to do this kind of research, but who actually is, is willing to change his or her living uh, place just in order to do the perfect field of study for maybe two or three years. And then, of course, another point to consider is always where will a specific choice of research topic lead you in the future? Will this open up for you a lot of further research opportunities? Will it maybe help you to get a permanent position, if it's a very trendy field, for example? Or if you should be forced out of the academic career path, would your research field be useful for getting a job in industry afterwards? So these are all considerations that students have to keep in mind. And so they end up doing a research field which is neither perfectly relevant for society nor absolutely interesting for themselves. So I myself experienced this dilemma through my whole research life. I have to admit that the criterion of relevance for society 
has never played a big role for me. I wanted to work in a field that I'm really burning for. And since my main interest that has driven me into physics was to understand the foundations of quantum mechanics, I made this compromise and moved into the field of semiconductor nanostructures. So this at least allowed me to do quantum mechanics day by day for many, many years, even though the foundations of quantum mechanics have never been touched through all the time. So, for example, the famous measurement problem in quantum mechanics didn't play any role in my daily work. And next I moved into the field of biophysics, because biology is a field of complex systems, and this was a field I was really interested in. However, I had to choose the only biophysical institute that was available at this time in our university, which had to do with cell migration mainly, and also with cell mechanics, and with the mechanics of biomaterials. And to be honest, this was not really what I was interested in, but it was the closest thing to working in complex systems. So I did this for several years. And then I became interested in how the brain really works from a physicist point of view. And so I tried to find something in our local university landscape here, which has to do with neurophysics. And so I ended up now doing a three-year research project in the field of EEG anal analysis of sleeping patients. So, of course, the brain signals of sleeping humans have to do with how the brain works, but in a very, very indirect way. So this is far from the type of science I would like to do. But I had to do this compromise because in our German system, when you don't have your own professorship, you must be affiliated to some institute. And so you have to look for the best possible compromise. So during my whole research career, in quotation marks, <laughs> I had to do research which I was not fully interested in and which in addition I didn't consider as relevant for the society. And you may find it hard to believe that nothing that I did was of any relevance to society. But let me tell you a little anecdote here. I recently met the professor which had supervised me during all these years in my semiconductor nanostructure field. He's retired now for many years, but during his active years, a huge number of physics students have successfully finished their diploma or PhD thesis in his institute. So, when I recently had lunch with this professor, I asked him, say, I'm now out of this field of semiconductor nanostructures, and I would like to know what kind of applications have all our old theoretical ideas found in the meantime in industry. And then he said something like, ah, you know, I have recently been asked by another colleague a similar question. He asked me, what do you think is your own contribution to the world, the contribution of your whole working lifetime? And I had to admit, well, really nothing, except that a few PhD students had a few very good years in my institute. I found it great that he was willing to admit this, and I guess a lot of other professors wouldn't. But I think it's really the truth. We had 
in the old institute times countless ideas of new semiconductor nanostructures, which could have been used for very interesting technical applications. But in the end, it never played out. So this is, by the way, another possibility how the transfer of basic science to our day-to-day -day life can be disrupted. If the people in industry simply do not take notice of what is going on in the basic research labs. Or maybe they are aware of some of the basic research results, but they consider them as too money and time consuming to being developed into the form of a real yeah, sellable product. And of course, I, I fully understand that this is a very long way from a prototype in a basic research lab towards a product that you can sell on the market. Okay, so far I have mentioned two problems of basic science as a motor of innovation, which are more political in nature. One is that scientists are not, so to say, allocated to the positions in which they would be most useful. And the other is that the results of basic science are somehow not very nicely transferred to technology. So that a lot of potential applications are simply lost. And before I continue, let me just mention that I'm really talking about basic science here. So if you go to the engineering fields, there the transfer from universities to, to industry is much better. Yeah, so for example, in computer science in our local university here, I know there is a lot of collaboration going on between university institutes and the local industry. But this is of course much easier because these research fields are already at a very applied level. Anyway, next I would like to talk about a problem which is really part of the scientific process itself. This is a problem which is occupying my mind for quite a long time now. And I have the strange feeling that, except me, practically nobody is talking about it, although it is very obvious, in my opinion. And so I'm already considering the possibility that I have some psychological problem here, but 
you can decide by yourself. So the problem is that obviously science has to be grounded in evidence, right? In, in data, in measurements. And only once you have your data on the table, so to say, you can start constructing models to explain this data or to improve your models, which you already have. And in my experience, data has a double function in science. On the one hand, if you have some interesting and maybe unexpected features in the data, this can really stimulate your mind to, to bring about new models, which you didn't think of before. And on the other hand, of course, the data is restricting your model building. Only those models are considered useful, which do not contradict the data. Now, I have used this particular image of bringing the data to the table purposefully. I want you to imagine for a moment a scientist who is working in her or his lab doing measurements and he or she is writing down the results of these measurements in the form of numbers or curves on some pieces of paper. And then after the measurement is done, he <laughs> leaves the lab, closes the door, goes to the office and puts these data papers on the table in order to think about them. Now comes the separate phase of interpretation of the data or of model building or model improvement. And the person who is doing this model improvement can be either the same scientists who already did the measurement or if we are more in a field like physics, we have often this separation between people who are strictly working as experimentalists and others who are working as theorists. And I am one of these theorists who is only working based on this abstract data on a paper and who never actually is doing measurements in the lab. Now, please try to put yourself mentally into the position of the theorist. The job of the theorist is to first take these experimental numbers for what they are, yeah, to, to trust them to a certain extent, and from them to produce new interesting models. The experimental data are, so to say, the raw material from which a theorist is supposed to produce new models. Just like, a, I don't know, a cook is supposed to produce delicious new food from given ingredients, which maybe another person is bringing to his kitchen. Now, in this simple analogy with a cook, you can easily see that it's very difficult to produce delicious dishes from bad ingredients, right? So the cook has also the responsibility to check the ingredients, that they meet his or her standards, and to inform the person who delivers these ingredients to him if the quality is not as expected. And in a very similar way, it also happens in science. As a theorist, you first trust the data, but often you find that something is strange and you 
then have to inform the experimentalist about this. And now it happened very often in my scientific career so far that I first took data serious and that I found some interesting features in the data. They stimulated my mind. I was therefore able to produce some interesting theory which could explain these nice features. And then I talked about this new theory with the experimentalists only to learn that they immediately see, oh, oh, these features of the data, they are just artifacts. You shouldn't take them serious. They come from this and this measurement problem. Yeah, just to give you a simple example from my, my recent project with the EEG data from sleeping persons. I got new data from a 64-channel EEG machine and when I looked simply at the signals, I found some interesting trends. So, for example, some signals consistently grew larger and larger or smaller and smaller over the night. And this was a very prominent feature. And I evaluated this. But when I showed it to the experimentalists or to the people who knew more about how these things are actually measured in the sleeping lab, I was informed that this very probably is just the effect that the electrodes, which are, of course, connected by some paste or something to the skull of the, of the person who is measured, that this electric or uh, capacitive contact is changing over time, maybe because of this paste is drying out overnight. And so this gives this artifact that all your signals are changing by a huge amount over the whole sleeping period. You know, it wouldn't be a big deal if this happens only once. But if you, after this event, look again at the data and you find another set of interesting features which, which really cause you to, to invent new interesting hypotheses and they again turn out to be only artifacts. And this is repeated several times. And so little by little all the interesting prominent features of the data disappear, so to say. Yeah? They are just artifacts of the measurement process and all remains are very boring signals. And then you start to think, of course, that why are those remaining boring signals not also just artifacts of measurement? Yeah? What can I trust if, if the real interesting signal is only 10 times smaller than all the noise and the artifacts of your measuring system. Now, just to be clear, this kind of thing does not only happen in my present research field. It was very similar before when I was working in biophysics on mainly cell migration. So for example, I remember once I got these data of the cell positions in a Petri dish over time and I found some very interesting pattern immediately when looking at it. But then it turned out, yeah, this was just an effect that for some reason some convection current had carried all the cells across the Petri dish. And so there were, a lot of them were moving in the same direction. You know, this is not something which gives you a lot of trust. Now, of course, if you are an experimentalist, you know about these possible artifacts and you are in principle able to avoid them. And in each iteration of an experiment, you can get better and you can 
get better control over all the possible factors which might affect your result in an uncontrolled way. But there is a limit to what you can figure out. That's my point. My point is you can only continue for a certain time to, to rule out certain artifacts and to improve your measurement system. At some point you have to stop and say, okay, now it looks to me as if I can trust these data. So I stop and now I take these data as true, write them down and bring them to the theorist who is then supposed to take them serious. Now, the point that I tried to make before the music break was that data is not like a solid ground on which you can build the cathedral of science. Data is more like lava from a volcano, yeah? something relatively soft which is constantly moving and which you cannot really trust. Or, to use another analogy, Measurements are not so much like a technical data sheet yeah, where you can simply look up the definite specs of some technical product. Data is more like the ancient scripts of a religion yeah, where you cannot take each sentence uh, by face value. You have to interpret everything and you have to carefully judge by yourself what you want to take serious and what not. Now, what I have said just now is, of course, only based on my own personal life experience, on really a countless number of failed measurements, where in the end it turned out it was just an artifact. And it can, of course, be that this is just an accident of my life, yeah? that other people have more luck and they are working in labs or something which are very careful and which finally have achieved a very high reliability of the measurements, I don't rule that out at all. And in fact, I had a much better experience with measurement results when I was still working in the field of semiconductor nanostructures. Because at that time, the systems we were studying were much, much simpler. They were not living systems, but so-called dead systems even systems which we had constructed by our own. Yeah? We had made layers after layer of atoms and 
we made our uh, artificial materials and then we measured them. And then, of course, because we had a lot of these uh, production processes under control, the properties of the resulting structures were also very well defined. But this is not the case in complex systems, not the case in living systems in particular. Complex systems are known to often produce a huge amount of noise. Yeah, noise is just a name for signal variations that we cannot explain and which we therefore attribute to random uh, sources. But the problem is that the, for example, probability distribution or the statistical properties of this noise can even change over time. So even if you have learned to handle a certain kind of noise in your lab, then maybe next week the same system will show a completely different type of noise and your measurement system is again not equipped for it. So there are lots of possibilities why measurements on complex systems can go wrong, and they do go wrong. But now let me come to the important point. As I have explained before, an experimentalist can only spend a certain amount of time and energy until the result of the measurement is finally trusted, in quotation marks, and published. And once it's published and peer-reviewed, it's considered kind of true in science until somebody can really explicitly show there was a measurement error or something like that. Okay, now I have to come back to this idea which I discussed in a former podcast episode, which I called checkmark thinking. So this is this concept that you have a discrete mechanism, like a checkmark, which signifies that a certain result is considered to be true. Yeah? And you don't anymore consider the statistical truth value, yeah? the Bayesian probability of this specific result. You just consider the result as being true, full stop. But then we run into big trouble if the person who is using these results as the input for his or her own work, if this person doesn't know about the detailed history, how the data has been obtained. And so he has to trust this. And then, of course, possible errors will be transmitted into whatever product you build out of these data. And if this is a hierarchical process, there can really be an accumulation of errors. So let me just give you a trivial real-life example for this accumulation process as well. Say a person has a certain health problem, not very serious. He goes to his or her house doctor, and the house doctor, with maybe his ultrasound, finds something which looks slightly irregular, but it's not clear. But because this thing would fit to the symptom the patient is, is telling him he takes it serious and writes down he found this and this abnormity in the ultrasound. And then he sends maybe the patient to another specialist doctor who makes another measurement. And this other doctor maybe reads the results of the house doctor and sees, aha, uh -huh, there is already some indication for a certain type of disease. Then he is kind of primed already yeah, to find results in his own measurements which may be in agreement with the former opinion. This is absolutely normal human behavior and it's 
very hard to protect against it. But even if this second doctor does not consider the results of the former doctors, he's just objectively, in quotation marks, doing his own measurement. This measurement, again, has a relatively high probability of being wrong because it's a measurement on a complex system. And so maybe the second measurement is also not really true, in quotation marks. And now we have already true, uh, sorry, two results which maybe are confounding yeah, and, and really point per accident into the same disease direction. Know what I mean? So this is the kind of accumulation that can easily occur. In my humble opinion, only a very small fraction of the population, at least in Germany, is aware of the high statistical uncertainty of all kinds of measurements in complex systems, in particular measurements in medicine. And it's not only medicine, and it's not only normal people from the street, so to say. Yeah? Even very high-ranked scientists that I highly regard for other reasons sometimes give the impression as if data would be such a solid ground on which you can build your theories. Uh, just one example here too. I very much like Gary Nolan, which is recently becoming the, the spearhead, so to say, of the uh, UFO movement, so this, this disclosure process. And uh, he has kind of <laughs> replaced Lou Elizondo recently in his popularity. And he's a Harvard professor and a Nobel Prize nominee, and he's an experiencer by himself. And he seems to really believe that there's a possibility of something highly interesting going on with the phenomenon. So this is not the topic of, of today's talk. My point is simply that he also says he really uh, is insisting on getting better and better data. Yeah? And the same argumentation you can hear from Abi Loeb, for example. He also says we have to go away from these very bad images we get from private person's cameras and we have to have high-definition videos and so on from uh, UFOs, for example. Of course, collaborated with different radar measurements and so on and so on. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I like very much to have high-quality measurement data. But there is no such thing then that you can say, this is data which we really trust and we can now start to think based on this data because there will always be small artifacts, small irregularities in the data, which some critics can detect and which may then say, yeah, we don't really trust this type of measurement. You know, the simple point is that as a normal person, you never get to see the raw data which scientists have measured. You always read about science results from, I don't know, newspapers, yeah? And these articles are written by, by journalists who are not really scientists by themselves. And they never have worked in the lab. And they, they can only express in their own words what the scientists have told them. And this is not based on the raw data and the uncertainty, yeah? Of course, if I give a, an interview to a journalist as a scientist, I will 
not emphasize the possible measurement errors. Yeah, of course, it would be <laughs> not very wise, uh, career-wise. Okay, so it's clear that a scientist will usually present his results in a light which is at least slightly mm, too overconfident. I know what many of you are probably thinking now. You will wonder how so many scientific results can be wrong, as I say, and at the same time our technology and everything is working quite well. That's indeed a valid objection and I myself, to be honest, have struggled with this yeah, seeming contradiction for quite some time. But I believe we can come a little bit closer to the solution of this problem if we consider more carefully which parts of our modern technology are working better and which are working not so well. So one important sector of modern technology, which I regard as surprisingly reliable, is this whole microprocessor technology. Yeah, if you look at a typical PC, you will be maybe surprised that you never observe a <laughs> calculation error of the CPU during the whole lifetime of your PC. And of course, this is partly due to error correction machinery inside the PC. But it's also really amazing how reliable these microchips can be produced. And as I have also explained, I think, in one or more former podcast episodes, this uh, process of optimizing the production of microchips is not really based on basic science. It's based on a kind of evolutionary process of optimization. Yeah? All the different parameters which affect the yield of the, the, the number of chips that can be used uh, at the end of the production street Every tiny parameter in the production process, like temperatures and, uh, and uh, amounts of materials used and so on, all these parameters can be optimized in a blind process without really understanding what is going on. And evolutionary optimization works. We know that it works from nature. What does not work so very well is a big part of medicine, in my personal opinion. Uh, for example, I told you that recently my mother had this incident and she went to the hospital for one night. And after this, it was not really clear what caused the problem, but the doctors had to find something. And so they desperately made lots of measurements in the last minute before she was released from the hospital. And eventually they found something slightly irregular. And based on that, they gave her some medicine, also in the last minute. And then at home, a few days later, it turned out that she had lots of 
side effects from this medicine. And when we read the internet material about this specific medicine, it turned out it can be really dangerous in some cases. So in the end, we stopped all this, this medicaments and she's just using the same medicament she used all the time before and she's happy again. And this shows that every time uh, you are in a rush and you have a complex system like a human being and you cannot really know the details, the detailed history of this person. And you have to subs you give some subscription for some medicine based on some vague measurements, which, as I said, usually have lots of errors in them, then it's a very high probability that the results will not be very good. By contrast, my mother is going since many years to the same house doctor, and he knows her very, very well. He knows all the particular sensitivities she has for certain medicines, and he he acts on this knowledge. He, he's accumulating knowledge about her all the time she comes, and so to say, his way of treating her is becoming better and better. Yeah? So this is again an adaption process, a continuous flux, if you want, of, of measurement and theory construction and action based on the theory. Yeah? And all done by the same small group consisting of this house doctor and my mother herself. Yeah? In their discussion, they develop a possible next modification of her treatment. And this seems to work. Continuous processes of adaption seem to work. And it seems to be also important that the person who is producing the measurement data and the person who is doing something based on this data is not separated too far from each other. Yeah? And now I come to the, to the main point I would like to end this episode with. My favorite example for such an adaptive learning process is the lifelong practice of the good old craftsmen of old time, which have finally become masters of their craft. Consider, for example, one of these Japanese master sword makers. Sword making is a very highly developed technological process, but it's not based on abstract science or an abstract scientific understanding. I don't know, maybe modern material science has a certain level of theoretical understanding yeah. down to the atomic level of the steel that can explain why these old masters word makers have preferred certain types of raw materials yeah, and, and why they have processed them in a very specific way that leads to optimal results. But in the old time, they did not have an atomic theory of matter yeah, and they did not need it. Uh, it was all figured out by trial and error and by paying a very high level of attention. And the same is, of course, true for other types of traditional manual work. Yeah? When these crafts are performed, there is practically zero separation between the data-gathering phase, the model-building phase, and the action phase. Yeah? It's all 
a single unified process, sometimes even performed by a single person, a process that leads from the raw material to the final product. Somehow an experienced craftsman knows intuitively in every phase of the production process when things are going well and also when something is not quite right uh, and when subtle actions are required yeah, to, to bring the process back on track. This is like an ongoing feedback loop, yeah? <laughs> almost like the development of an organism. Yeah? And the craftsman is continuously feeling the workpiece with his hands yeah? and, and with all other senses as well. And so, in a certain sense, he or she is, is, is gathering data, yeah? but this is not objective data in the form of numbers on a piece of paper. Yeah? Everything remains on the level of subjective experience all the time. And if the workpiece is momentarily deviating from the ideal, yeah? the, the required counteractions are instantly applied on an intuitive level. Yeah? Think of a potter, for example, yeah? who, who observes an unwanted deformation you know, of the clay bowl that is rotating on the wheel and who just moves his finger slightly to correct the form. In principle, to find a suitable action at any point of time really requires an extremely complex model of the workpiece and its interactions with the tools. But for an experienced craftsman, this does not require a separate thinking phase, right? All these cognitive processes have been completely become subconscious by a year-long training. And maybe the required models have not even been made explicit during the training of the craftsmen. Yeah? I remember that when I did Aikido in a Japanese dojo, the teachers there tended to not explain any of the body movements. Yeah? You were expected to just watch and try to imitate and to develop your own subjective feeling for what is a good movement. And this is very different from the Western teaching style. Yeah? where everything has to be put into explicit words and maybe even into numbers. Yeah? Okay, so what I want to say is that maybe we have gone too far in our modern society with tearing all production processes apart yeah? and distributing them over many different people and over many different places. And Maybe we should not have created an economy where people, you know, just to keep earning money, have to take any kind of boring job, yeah? even if they are not qualified for it or outright hate it. Yeah? Uh, instead of doing the same professional activity for a very long time and gradually becoming an intuitive master of the art, yeah? people are jumping in and out of jobs yeah? and all they are required to do is to fulfill certain key numbers which managers have set up, yeah? check mark thinking. And 
Maybe I have committed the very same mistake in my life. I have also jumped a lot between scientific fields and all that was required you know, in order to survive in the academic system was to publish a certain number of papers per year. I did not need to become a master in any field. And although I always believed that I hate experimental work, I sometimes think it must be great to measure the data that I need for doing theory by myself, instead of always relying on experimentalists. And I also regret that I am so bad in all kinds of handcrafts. Yeah? The only little art forms that I can enjoy at a decent level is cooking and playing music. Yeah? Maybe I should do these things more in the future. <laughs>